Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode where we talk about all kind, man, all kinds of stuff on this podcast. Today is I I'm so excited about this topic. It is definitely something I have. I'm pretty sure I can say with 100% certainty we've never actually talked about this topic on this podcast before. We're going to be talking about lice, you guys. This is insane. For my nurses that are listening and nursing students, you guys know it's kind of a joke and yet it's very serious. Like we don't like we don't like dealing with lies and all that stuff at the hospital. It's so today I thought it would be really cool to have somebody on who is an expert in this topic. And we're gonna talk about unfortunately a really sad and very disturbing story for the Badner story, but it's gonna be very educational. So Stick with me. We're gonna we're gonna get through this difficult uh, topic, and then when we get to the Goodner story, we're gonna be talking to uh, Eileen, the Lies Queen, who's also gonna be here for the Badner story as well. Welcome to the podcast, Eileen. Thank you, Tina. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to go through this and hopefully, you know, shed some light on the better part of dealing with lice. Yeah, and that's the that's the thing. There is a stigma associated with lice. There are, are lots of myths out there, lots of misinformation, and I I'm just so excited. I love to be able to educate people about anything, but especially when it comes to a topic that where there's a lot of misinformation floating around out there. So I am so excited to get to talk about this today. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Okay, so we are going to get started with this this bad nurse story, man. This is, as I said uh, at the beginning, it is very disturbing. You guys, uh, unfortunately, that is that comes with the territory with with the bad nurse story. But as I said before, you know, we like to use these opportunities to kind of shine a light in the darkness and and talk about the difficult things in order to learn from them. So this is the story of a 14-year-old named Michaela Norman. So on March of the 1st in 2011, shortly after her arrival at Children's Medical Center in Dayton, Ohio, 14-year-old Michaela Norman, who suffered from cerebral palsy, tragically passed away. At the time of her passing, she weighed 
28 pounds. It's, I want that to kind of sink in. She's 14 years old and she weighed 28 pounds. Think about that for a minute. I am thinking about my cat food, my dog food that weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 pounds. And it's, it's so hard for me to imagine. So she was found to be infested with lice, suffering from numerous severe bed sores, as we would call them pressure ulcers in the healthcare field. Her skin was heavily soiled, which was indicative of a prolonged lack of bathing. She remained confined to her home. She did not attend school. She lived in complete isolation. So Molly Parsons was a 41-year-old licensed practical nurse from Dayton. And she, along with Angela Norman, Michaela's 42-year-old mother, were indicted on charges of involuntary manslaughter regarding Michaela's death. Parsons was assigned the responsibility of caring for Michaela from 3 to 11 p.m., six days a week, while her mother, Angela Norman, was tasked with providing care for the remaining time. However, Dayton homicide detective Rebecca Rose testified that Parsons, the nurse, the LPN, was rarely there, indicating a significant neglect of her duties. Detectives were informed by witnesses that Parsons, who, by the way, relinquished her nursing license, was observed at the Norman residence merely three to four days a month, a month, as conveyed to the judge by Detective Rose. Furthermore, it was testified that upon each of Parsons' arrival, she would signal her presence by honking her horn, and that would prompt Michaela's mother to accompany her on a shopping excursion. So Detective Rose reported that daily records maintained by Parsons suggested Michaela was in stable health without any complications, and that she had been nourished right before Parsons left the house at 10 o'clock at night on the day that she died. So a mere two minutes after Parsons left, Michaela's mother called 911. And she reported that Michaela was having a difficult time breathing. The child was immediately transported to Children's Medical Center of Dayton, where she succumbed at 1030. Think about this, Eileen. She, the nurse, her nurse left the house. Two minutes later, Michaela's mom called 911. And 30 minutes later, she was dead. So she documented that everything was fine and there were no complications for that visit. Something is very, very wrong with this whole situation. Not only does it not sound right, I, I mean, this this poor kid it was really relying on these people to take care of her. And, you know, there was a plan put in place and who knows what the conversation was with the mom and this nurse because, you know, her leaving two minutes before Clearly, the symptoms didn't just appear. No, that's the thing. And I think any every healthcare professional and every person listening to this podcast understands that. We know, I've, we've, now, I've taken care of uh, many, many people in the hospital. Things can happen. You can have 
you know, flash pulmonary edema. There are things that can happen very quickly to somebody. But this little girl was infested with lice. There were things that were that was that was going on with her that did not just all of a sudden happen. She did not, you know, she was obviously emaciated. She was obviously cachectic. She weighed 28 pounds at, at 14 years old. So where, you know, something could happen very quickly and someone could decline, you know, very quickly and but there's nothing you know, quick about no. this. Maybe there was a no. quick symptom of labored breathing in the two and a half, two minutes since the nurse had left. But that was not a healthy, there was no way she could have checked out healthy. You know, you know better than I do, but her vitals could not have been strong two minutes before labored breathing. Exactly. For her to be so symptomatic that her mother picked up on it, you know, just a couple of minutes after the nurse left, clearly, when that nurse was there, there should have been some crackles in her lungs, there should have been something that it would have indicated to a healthcare professional that something was not right. I I would imagine she was probably she would probably have been, you know, lethargic, breathing, her respiratory rate would have been high, so many things would have been going on with her for her to all of a sudden for the mother to just be like, oh my gosh, I better call the doctor. It's just very odd. There's nothing all of a sudden when you're 28 pounds and your skin is in such bad condition with compression sores. And that's not somebody that's being cared for properly. That You, you said it exactly, exactly right. That's, there's, yeah. There's just no no excuse for that. So it's for her to have documented no complications and that everything was fine. It is, it's, it's just hard to understand. So according to statements from witnesses, Rose, uh, this was Detective Rose, affirmed that Parsons was present at the home that evening and that that's the nurse. Detective Rose emphasized that Michaela was entirely reliant on her caregivers at the time of her death. Her weight was half of what it had previously been recorded. Half. So the last time she was at some sort of official, you know, healthcare setting where she would have been weighed officially and it had been recorded, she was double the weight that she was when she died. That's significant. And, and how long that before that was it documented, her weight? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It just, it really didn't say. It just said previously, so I'm not... I'm not sure, you know, how long it had been since she had been to like the doctor. I would imagine at least once a year, you know, an annual checkup by her doctor, who, by the way, we're going to find out toward the end, had some involvement in this as well. She had suffered from cerebral palsy since birth. She was incapacitated completely, unable to walk. She couldn't speak. She could not fend for herself. And um, her sole source of nutrition was had to be administered through a feeding tube. She, They would give her five to six cans of Ensure every day. And that had to go through her feeding tube. I mean, for me, I've always administered, you know, actual, tu- what, what we would call tube feedings in these big bags. And they have like the appropriate nutrition for a very, you know, a specific patient. There's all different kinds of them. And they they're ordered by the provider. They're ordered by the physician or a nurse practitioner or a PA who knows that patient and they order it based on their nutritional needs. A can of Ensure 
I don't understand that. That sounds like an, maybe an insurer would be a supplement that you would try to give them. But for their sole nutrition, that sounds like completely inadequate. That does not sound like enough nutrition for anyone, which would explain why she would be 28 pounds at 14 years old. I would assume that they have, you know, bags with certain levels of calories and nutrition and electrolytes if the person needs. And that's, I, I you know, it's safe to assume that a nurse in charge is responsible for checking the vitals and checking to see how where the electrolytes are and where the where the needs are for the nutrition to then know what you need to have on hand. Ensure it could be dessert at night, you know, even though it's a feeding tube and it's not like, but it doesn't seem like it should have been. So yeah, yeah something's it not could have right. been a supplement. No, it definitely not. And it, you would think that a nurse going to the home to assess Michaela sometime months ago would have said, she's losing weight. We need to figure out what's going on here. And would have said, let's get her to the doctor. Let's, let's get, let's, let's, let's make an appointment. Let's get her to the doc. Let's draw some labs. Let's, you know, see what we can do. Let's get her to the dietitian. Let's get her to somebody who can give us some advice of what to do to bulk up her, her weight, because this is not obviously not adequate. And apparently there was just no thought to that whatsoever. It, I, I, it's hard for me to understand this, but this is the situation that Michaela was, was living with, unfortunately. These were the people who were taking care of her. Detective Rose was referencing medical documents. She provided a detailed account of Michaela's condition at the time of her death. She said that her hair, including her eyebrows and, and eyelashes, were severely infested with lice at various stages of development. What does that mean to you when you hear that, Eileen? It means that this poor Michaela had an extreme and intense case of head lice. And that just means that it has had been there for a very long time. Would it have been obvious? Do you, I mean, I don't, I honestly don't. I've literally never, thank you, Lord. <laughs> I've never had to, I've never had to deal with lice. I've never actually, I probably, I wish I had some wood to knock on right now, but I'm, I'm, I don't know. What do you think it would have been obvious to them? It Should it have been obvious to them that she was infested with lice? It was blatantly obvious. Yes. I'll give you a mental visual. Medusa. It is also believed or a myth that she is a depiction of what people's hair used to be like because lice has been around as long as humans. And way back when, when Medusa was thought up, maybe the person that thought her up thought her up as a person that had head lice. It was way more common centuries ago and we're going back longer than that. So if you can imagine Medusa and imagine the head is basically crawling, you know, if you look at Medusa and she's got all those worms moving around in her head. Oh my gosh, yes. An extreme case, and I specialize in extreme cases, you see it crawling. And you would see white, it would be crusty, it would be very obvious, they knew. It would be obvious that there is some, they, they should be doing something to help this poor girl. Would this have itched? Would there have been symptoms? Would Michaela have been uncomfortable because of this? 
Michaela would have been uncomfortable with everything that she had going on. Absolutely. This, people that have extreme lice, though, they get used to it. It's almost like living near a train. You don't hear it anymore. People with extreme or chronic cases of lice, and there's a difference, they are used to it. They just live with it. Do you think that it's possible that Michaela had lice and no one else in the house? Or do you think it's... So if I remember correctly, there was a younger sister that had been removed from the house. Yeah, there's an actually an older sister. She was 18, but she was still living there. And they did remove her from the house when they came and found the conditions that they were living in. So if you think about it, Michaela probably wasn't around other kids or other people. So potentially, maybe the sister had it. She got it from somewhere because it comes from head-to-head contact. So somebody had to have gotten close enough to Michaela that had lice to give it to her. It's not like bed bugs where they can crawl in through the neighbor's, you know, electrical lines into through your sockets and into your house, right? Or apartment. Lord, you're giving people nightmares, Eileen. I I should have done a trigger warning at the beginning of this. Look, we're talking about lice. I know. I, I make it fun. But it is still gross. But yeah, there, there's. She had to have gotten it from somebody. So somebody got close enough to her to give it to her. But in my career, I and I, like I said, deal with extreme cases, and many of them. I have never seen lice in eyelashes and eyebrows personally, but I do know that it's possible. And in my thought process. It would be more if somebody had like bangs so that lice would crawl down and have a way to get there more readily, but it doesn't matter. I mean, they, they still can crawl. Like if they're, if there's a lot and they're running out of room, they're going somewhere else. I have, however, which is also pretty rare. I have found it in beards and mustaches when the person is so extremely infested. And and it's not just kids, unfortunately. I deal with, you know, adults with special needs and and kids, Uh, but it's always either some sort of neglect or a person that is under the care of and relying on other people to help them. Wow. That That is extremely sad. That's so sad. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything, but it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. 
This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stats status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stats sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. Obviously, if you've never seen a case like this where it's in her eyebrows and and this was in, in her in her eyebrows and eyelashes, that tells you guys, because Eileen's been, she she's literally the expert. She teaches everybody about this subject. So for her to say that tells me how extremely rare this is and how bad it actually was. But that's not the only thing that was going on with her as far as her condition at the time of her death. Her teeth were coated with plaque. Abnormal growths were observed on her tongue. She had extensive open pressure ulcers that spanned her body from her ears to her ankles. Imagine, you know, her just being kind of in one position for a long period of time, not being turned, not being just looked after, you know, to make sure that 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 those areas of pressure were being, you know, attended to. It's isn't that nursing one hundred and one. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. I know that there's so many nurses and nursing students listening to this just appalled and 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 nursing assistants, like so many people that care caregivers. I know that listening to this podcast are just, you know, coming unglued right now hearing this because the, everybody knows that this is basic, basic nursing, basic caregiving, that you keep people that are immobile like this turned, you move them often, you get them up, you you get them off the areas of pressure. I say it this way, I was very fortunate to help my sister, who's a nurse of 55 years, help her with our mom's hospice care. And I learned a lot about keeping the skin healthy and, you know, lift and, and move and pull and turn. And, you know, we had this sheet, I forget what it was called so that we don't slide her on the bed. Yeah. We lifted and moved. There was so much care that went into making sure that my mom was comfortable and that her skin was, because once you get a sore, now you can't lay in that spot. Even when it just turns red before there's a sore, you have to avoid before the shearing, right? Shearing. That was, and I imagine, look, I was like a candy striper learning the basics and the beginning of of care. And, and that was the most important thing. And I have so much respect for caregivers and people that take care, nurses that take care of these patients that can't do for themselves. There's so much to the dignity of that person and and making sure that they're comfortable, especially with somebody like Michaela that could not speak for herself. And, and she didn't know any better. And so sadly, you know, she was really left 
to not be taken care and not taken care of. Yes, exactly. And I, I, I'm not not to say that pressure ulcers can't happen, even if you are doing all the things right, because they can because of a lack. Because sometimes when someone is declining in their health, because yes, nutrition, and you literally can't keep up with it. But the point is that you have to do everything that is, you possibly can to, to try to prevent it. And clearly, that was not being done. This is blatantly obvious that this was not being done. Her skin was heavily soiled. Her colon was so extensively impacted with fecal matter that it caused a noticeable distension in her abdomen. The pressure ulcers around her hips were exacerbated by her diaper. The pressure ulcers themselves were actually contaminated with feces. I mean, that right there can lead to osteomyelitis and all sorts of like sepsis, systemic infection, loss of limb. It, it, just it, it to my core, it 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 hurts so badly to think about someone suffering like this. But I, it's hard for me to imagine a mother allowing this to go on and just kind of like watching a, this poor girl die over a period of months. I don't know, or years. I don't know how long she was she was like this. Detective Rose said that she resembled a skeleton with skin draped over it. That's how she, that was the only way that she could describe what she saw when she saw Michaela. There's really, I mean, that visual right there tells you, I think, all you need to know about the condition, you know, that she was, that she was living in and how she suffered, absolutely suffered over the last months of her life. It's, it's really sad. It's disturbing. And I, I like to use these opportunities and these stories to educate healthcare professionals and anybody who who would listen to this about the importance of if you are taking if, if I don't care if it's your if it's your child if it's your patient if it's anybody that you decide to be responsible for get you know if you're getting paid for it or for whatever reason if you take on that responsibility, you're going to be held accountable for their care. And you just basic human dignity, basic, uh, just, I mean, even if you just use your common sense, you're going to be, you're going to be held accountable for your education. Let's make no mistake about that. As a nurse, whatever, at whatever level you are practicing at, whether you are a CNA, whether or a nurse assistant or a licensed practical nurse or a registered nurse or a doctor, whatever level that you are educated at, you will be held accountable because if something like this happens under your watch and you are brought into court, they will bring in, let me just tell you, they will bring in a professional that is equal to the position that you hold. And they will ask that person, would someone in that that position that with with the education that this person had, should they have known better than this? Should they have known that this person needed this care or needed that care? Or should they have known better than what they did? And that's the standard that you're going to be held to. Okay, I just want you guys to understand that you are held to a standard. If you take on this responsibility, this nurse these nurses, there are actually more. There's a, like I said, there's going to be a doctor. We're going to talk about, I mean, 
It's a cascade of... Yes, it's a cascade. Yes. So many people like that absolutely failed this poor girl. You know, it's really, it's, it's unfortunately when Judge Huff, the, the judge that the, the detective was talking to asked the, de- the detective if the nurse, Parsons, had a legal obligation to report the conditions. And she said, yes, that was their responsibility. It's the responsibility of caregivers to report and address signs of neglect and abuse. And absolutely, it is your responsibility. And whether or not you, and if you think that, you know, you don't want to get involved or, oh, well, well, I'm just doing my job. No, if you take on that responsibility, then yes, you're going to be held legally accountable. Just, I'm just, I'm telling you this because I feel like these people were all just going about their lives and they really had no idea. I don't think they even had any idea that they could be held criminally liable. I don't know. I think that people justify in their minds just ignoring situations and somehow they had they had somehow justified in their minds that everything was fine. But you will be held accountable. Clearly they took the easy road. You know, because had they brought it to the attention and honestly, you know, a nurse is a nurse you have your parameters of what you're responsible for nobody's playing god but you know you have then the next level would be a doctor or the nutritionist or you know somebody that would whatever it is there's another layer there's somebody to go to to say okay this is what's happening you know, but without having that initial reporting, there's no hope. So they really no, did you're take the ones it on with themselves. laying eyes on them. You are the eyes and ears for their those other professionals. And so if you're not saying anything, if you're just going about your business and it's just easier for you to show up a couple of times, you know, two, three times a month, it's hard, you know, like five, what, what is she it? She got paid four or five times a she month. She was getting paid for yes, regular she was. visits. Too, I think she was getting paid for regular visits every day or like something like six days a week or something like that. And only showing up just a few few times a month. So the detective also testified about the findings in the residence that it was cluttered with garbage, unwashed dishes, fecal matter was present throughout dead insects were found inside the refrigerator. So they did not have running water. But the household did have functioning internet and telephone services. They didn't have water, but they had internet. I don't know. Just Right. It's priorities. Uh, yeah. Cable and internet. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So given the appalling conditions, the detectives did notify Children's Services to intervene, and that did result in the removal of Michaela's sister, who was 18 years old, but living there and going to school. But they did remove her from the premises for her safety. Detective Rose also provided testimony that Children's Services had previously conducted an investigation into a referral concerning Michaela in 2009. See, this, I've done stories like this before where there were investigations or, you know, that someone called Protective Services and nothing ever happened in it. It's so frustrating because clearly someone thought something wasn't right. So then child services get involved, gets involved, and then 
it was deemed an inconclusive, you know, and then in 2004, Michaela's mother decided to withdraw her from public school and start homeschooling. The Dayton Daily News inquired about this because there should have been some sort of monitoring of Michaela's educational progress over the last seven years before her death. But apparently the school system did not do that. They absolutely just failed to to monitor her progress. So she was, quote, homeschooled. And yet, I mean, if she had been allowed to go to school or if they had made her mother send her to school every day, this probably would have never happened because I would imagine, you know, the, the, the teacher would have noticed. And just the activity, I think, of leaving the house. If you have to take her to school, you're not going to take her to school in that condition. So you're going to take her to school. You're going to get her up out of her out of her bed and into her chair. So just that movement itself is going to help re- alleviate some of the pressure, you know, off of those sources, of, you know, the pressure points, and just moving her around. I she's going to be seen. Her teacher would have been aware of the if she was losing weight. So that withdrawing from school someone, which someone was responsible for watching over her. There was a nurse, there was a nurse who was responsible for watching over her. Unfortunately, it was a nurse that did not have ethics in the front of her to-do list because she just, on so many levels, dropped the ball. So her mother, Angela Norman, was charged with involuntary manslaughter and, in, and child endangerment regarding her, her older child. Molly Parsons was the LPN. She was charged with involuntary manslaughter and failing to provide for a functionally impaired person and tampering with records. Catherine Williams and Mary Kilby were each charged with failing to provide for a functionally impaired person and failing to report child abuse or neglect. They were. So Catherine was a registered nurse as well as Molly's supervisor, and was supposed to visit the home at least once a month. Uh, Mary was a registered nurse and was the supervisor of Michaela's case and was supposed to visit the home at least every six months. But they both failed to do so. All of these nurses collected payments and did not provide appropriate care to Michaela. It's been reported by homicide detectives that Mary Kilby, the one that was supposed to, you know, go every six months. She apparently made a visit to the home five days before Michaela's death. What is going on? Because, I mean, it's one thing to have one nurse who is just kind of like this rogue, you know, like I doesn't really care, taking the money and just doing the bare minimum. But all of these people, all of these people. Well, yeah, what was going on behind the scenes there? Like, I mean, it's hard to imagine, you know, when you're a nurse, you go, look, to go back to taking care of our mom, my sister's a nurse. She had all the blood pressure stuff and pulse socks and she had her, she could listen to my mom's heart. Even though they, she gave my, the nurse, you know, the hospice nurse, the numbers, the hospice nurse always took out her, her equipment and she did the vitals for herself. She used my sister's information as a guideline, and she was grateful to have such a knowledgeable person, a nurse, that was taking care of our mom. 
but that nurse took out her own equipment and took assessments and recorded her own numbers with her own, you know, under her own power, not taking the word of. So you can only imagine like what was going on, you know, were they actually taking the vitals for themselves or were they being schmoozed by whoever was there saying everything's fine, she's okay, you know, who knows what went on behind the scenes, but it all just stinks. It doesn't smell right. It doesn't seem right. So you have the nurse who is supposed to be there, you know, several times a week. That obvious, that's obvious, blatant, just complete neglect, complete just ignoring the obvious. But then you have these other nurses who were supposed to be kind of supervising over the case that are supposed to be coming. Either they literally went to the house, saw all of these conditions, lack of running water, pressure ulcers, lice, visible lice, completely emaciated, mal, you know, malnourished, saw all of these conditions and then just thought that that was, yeah, they're, we're good, you know, either that or they weren't going at all and they were just documenting that they went and basing it off of maybe a verbal, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I don't know what happened. I just know that something was way off for this poor girl. So, so many people were responsible for keeping an eye on her and, and monitoring her surroundings, monitoring her condition. And all of these people let her down. Her mother got nine years for manslaughter. Molly Parsons, the LPN, got 10 years for manslaughter and three years for healthcare fraud. That's, you guys... You can't document something. You can't chart something you didn't do. Just, you know, we've, I, I tell you guys that all the time on here. You, people get in trouble for this all the time. Nurses get in trouble. Doctors do too. Uh, healthcare professionals, you cannot chart that you did something that you did not do. If you didn't do it, just don't, you don't have to, don't chart it. It will always you, come back to gonna, get you. Yes, it will come back to get you. It absolutely will. Have some integrity, number one. Get a different job. There's so many jobs out there that we can do as as nurses, as healthcare professionals. There, you know, there's lots of different jobs you can do. If you if you're just kind of like burnout, just kind of tired of taking care of people, whatever. That's totally your prerogative. You know, I I get it. I understand it's hard taking care of people. So, but if you get to that point, it's time to you know move into something else. There's so many other things that you, that you can do. But if you choose to take responsibility for another human being, just this is the kind of thing that can happen. Especially so when they she, can't talk for themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And even more and so, I, I, you unfortunately, should make sure. More so. And I think that, unfortunately, there are people who think that if someone can't talk to the, for themselves, that they can be more neglectful because they can't speak up. They can't say anything. So they can kind of just do the very bare minimum. But sometimes there are, our bodies speak for itself. You know, someone, when someone dies and, and, or if, or not, you know, they're just eventually it comes to light. Maybe they go to the, the right healthcare provider, the right person comes along with some integrity that sees the condition that they're in. And all of a sudden, you're going to be held accountable for that. Just remember that when you're taking care of people. I just, I really want you guys to, you know, keep that in the the, the forefront of your mind. 
Mary Kilby, that nurse that was responsible for maintain, you know, keeping up with her every her case every six months. She was convicted of failing to provide for functionally impaired person. She was sentenced to probation. She was convicted of failing to report abuse and had got 180 days in jail, but had all of that, but 15 days suspended. Catherine Williams was that was also one of the nurses. She was convicted of failure to report child abuse or neglect and failing to provide for functionally impaired persons. She was sentenced to 30 days in jail and 160 hours of community service and one year of probation. Michaela's doctor. Okay, there was a doctor involved. So they, clearly they had to take Michaela to, for you know, there has to be a doctor that is involved in someone who is being overseen by home health. So if there's a home health situation, someone is on hospice or someone just getting provi- you know, home health care provided to them, there is a doctor that is responsible for the care. It's overseeing it. So Michaela's doctor entered no contest pleas in charge to charges of failing to report child abuse or neglect and agreed to give up her medical license. Edwards was her doctor from July 2010 until until she died. So in August of 2013, she was sentenced to six months, six months in jail with 45 days suspended. I mean, you guys, this is, you know, we we can sit here and we can kind of like pick pick this apart and really focus in on how dark and negative everything and, and everything it was, because that's what it was. But for the people that were actually living, you know, the nurses and the mother and all of the people that were living this life, I feel like they had they, they really were delusional. They literally were somehow lying to themselves that this was okay. I don't think that they were necessarily malicious and deliberately, you know, trying, I don't think they were trying to hurt Michaela or they were, I just feel like they just lied to themselves. They just somehow justified this in their minds, all of these people. So I I just, you know, for, for you guys that are out there that are responsible for taking care of people in nursing homes, in hospitals, in in their homes, home health, hospice, whatever the situation is, even if it's just, a, you know, like Eileen was talking about taking care of her own mother. If you take on that responsibility, that is a, that's a lot. That's a lot to have to do. And you're carrying the weight of of their care on your shoulders. So just understand that you're going to be held to that standard. I mean, as sad as it is for Michaela as the angel that she is, her situation and the people that were in charge of taking care of her and obviously, you know, this is a a great teaching tool to honor Michaela's memory as uh, the angel that she is, let her sad situation shed the light for people that do take care of other people to really understand that, like you said, you can't put things in a chart and say you did something that you didn't or put something in there that's not real. That you obviously, you'll always, you can't, just play games like that. This is not dress up. This is the real deal. This is this is it. And hopefully these are hard lessons, but good lessons 
for anybody that's hearing this, that neglect is neglect and it does not go unnoticed. And in somewhere, some way, somehow, it gets known. It, you know, it's it, it, it's just sad. I just hope that in honor of her memory that people learn from this and it avoids, you know, somebody somewhere at some point thinking that maybe, well, maybe not. And then let's get this done right. And let's make sure we take care of this because we're not going to let something like that happen. Absolutely. And bravo to the detectives and the prosecutors who chose to bring justice for Michaela in this situation. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, Y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes this stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. So I guess we can move into the good nurse segment. I was uh, like that that's part of the the thing I like about uh, the way that that I, that we do this the podcast is kind of getting to get out of the horrible, sad, you know, yucky stories and kind of, you know, get to end on a good note cuz gosh, it gets it gets dark quick around here when we talk about some of this stuff. So Eileen, you're called the lice queen. 
it's explain to everybody why in the world you would be called the lice queen. First of all, I'm laughing because we're going into the good part of this and we're talking about lice. Yeah. So the fact right. that this is the good part and it's the lice part, I love. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I I'm all about lice. So yes, I am Eileen the lice queen. Fortunately, my name is Eileen because it rhymes with queen and, you know, putting lice in the middle of all that is just hilarious. It's a funny story, but I was named that by somebody that I helped and it, the name stuck. However, yeah, so I'm a head lice expert, which is bizarre and weird, but, and it's not something that when you're a little girl, you say, Ooh, I want to be a ballerina and I want to be a veterinarian and a, a nitpicker because I'm a nitpicker. That's where the word comes from. Um, but I, I am so grateful that I, do what I do because I'm a solution to a problem. And the fact that I get to help moms, I'm a mom of four. So being charged with a skill and knowledge and experience to be able to help other families, other moms is like really such a, a, a great opportunity for me to, you know, do something that is so has such a positive impact. And, you know, especially, you know, I, and we'll talk about all the things that, you know, especially nurses need to hear when it comes to head lice, because I've heard stories in my salon from people that have had experiences. But when it comes to neglect, you're not every, keep in mind that every case of head lice starts the exact same way. And it starts with typically, not always, could be more than one mama bug that's already fertilized and that is laying eggs, transfers from one host to a new host. Sometimes it's more than one bug. It depends on how long they've been together and how contagious that initial person is. But she lays three to five nits, which are eggs, twice a day, and she tends to die from transferring onto that new host within 24, 36, 48 hours, something like that, depending on how hardy she is when she transfers, because the new host, their chem their blood chemistry is not what her digestive system was matured on. They were born and raised on another host. So when they transfer to a new host, it's a kamikaze mission. They go to the new host and they it's a blood meal. And after having a blood meal, she will start to die and eventually die and fall off. But she left behind nits, which are the eggs, right? Takes seven to 10 days for them to hatch. And a lot of literature says that they are in different places on the, a lot of times they say it's a quarter of an inch on the on the hair shaft and then as it matures, it moves further down and then it hatches. No, it depends on the person. It depends on their body temperature. It depends on how greasy maybe their hair or their scalp might be. The nits can be, and how long their hair is and how thick it is. So finer, thinner hair, the nits are closer to the scalp and shorter, thicker, coarser hair, and greasier hair, they're further down. They can be anywhere from a quarter of an inch to about three inches on the hair shift, but typically between three quarters of an inch to an inch on the hair shift. Okay, 
incubate, hatch, take seven to 10 days for them to hatch to be baby bugs. So at that stage, about seven to 10 days from exposure, the person, everybody, no matter how much we find when we find it, it all starts this way. They have just eggs, no contagious lice because it's an adult female that's contagious. So she died. She laid a few nits. Seven to 10 days, those nits hatch their babies. This person is still not contagious yet. I call this pre-lice. It's evidence that a person is exposed, but when we say a person has lice, you immediately think that they're contagious and they have enough to share. So I give the person that's in that sweet spot, that lice control spot, that they have pre-lice. They don't have, it's a made-up term on my own, but they don't have lice yet. They have expo- the evidence that they were exposed, but they're not contagious, so I say that they don't have a contagious case of lice. But it takes seven to 10 days for the bugs that have hatched to mature. Now the person's contagious. So Michaela and all the people that I have treated that have extreme cases, it all started the same way. And they had very little bit in the beginning. After several weeks of incubating and hatching, at about six to eight weeks, it's a pretty common case at that point because not everybody is itchy from head lice, which we'll talk about in a second. But if there's no indication or reason to check, then people often don't get itchy until about really four to six weeks, and in some cases, six to eight weeks. And after about six to eight weeks, everything just doubles. And you have a thousand, you can have a thousand eggs at that point, and the next seven to 10 days, there's another thousand and another thousand. And you can see how slow it is to build, but when you get to a certain point, it's off to the races. So yeah, it's it's at some point, it's very easy to see from across the room. And it's not that long, <laughs> quite honestly. Are there different types of lice? Like I've heard the, some different, like I've heard the term crab lice and like different, I don't know, I feel like they're, it, are there all different kinds of lice and it, are they regional or are they more active in the winter? Well, like in the summer versus the winter? Or I don't know. I feel like there's like so many different myths and I've heard all these different things. So what I like to tell people is that everything that you thought you knew about lice is probably not accurate. So forget about it. (laughs) My website has accurate information. So I always direct people to my website. A lot of, there's a lot of good information out there, but there's way more bad information. There are 3,400 different types of lice. However, there's three types of human lice. So hippos have lice, birds have lice, fish have lice, You there's sea lice, there's, you know, but there's three types of human lice. So there's crabs, which I call the down under lice because that's pubic lice. And they're shaped like a crab. They look like a crab. They have legs, they have a round body and legs on the sides of them and they kind of crawl like a crab. And by the way, anybody that needs to know, all you have to do is shave. If there's no hair there, there's no lice. Same with your head. <laughs> if you, But I don't re- ever recommend shaving your head if you have lice. Then there's body lice, which looks just like 
human head lice. They're cousins, but they're not the same. Body lice, people that work in ERs may experience body lice, people that have body lice. They're not living on the person. They're living on the clothing. They lay their eggs on the clothing and they use the human host as, you know, their their meal. Um, and it's that, but they lay their eggs on the clothing. So really just running their clothing through a hot dryer is enough to kill the eggs. Has to be a hot dryer over 130 degrees. Or people tell me they just have thrown them out. But human head lice, there's, as much as I know, there's one type of human head lice. But they're all different stages of resistant to permethrin, which is the over-the-counter product. And typically, there's way more lice now because of product failure. It's not people failure, but the um, lice have evolved over decades to protect themselves from the method of the neurotoxin in permethrin. So anything with a neurotoxin is going to have a hard time now killing a louse or penetrating the nit and killing the egg because they developed a gene in their glue which is their outer shell of their body and their arthropods. So as their body grows, their outer shell breaks off and a new one hardens. That's got the protective gene in it. So very rarely will permethrin work. It used to be, I've been doing this for since 2007, I used to find cases with nits and maybe baby bugs after people treated and it, over the years, I'd find more and more, more advanced cases of people that treated, and it was still there. I would say in the last probably five years, I saw more and more active cases. But in the in the last year, and I think, you know, us being kind of distanced through COVID and, and at home for periods of time, and now then kids went back into school. I think that the resistance has it like gotten a little bit of a boost and they're even more resistant because around the holidays, right around Christmas, I had some pretty active cases. People were blown away that they spent seven hours on two kids treating them. They brought them into the salon and I'm combing out over a hundred adult bugs and they treated a day and a half ago their kid was in school all day. They came to me after thinking they were treated and they weren't. So I confidently now tell people that if they're dealing with lice and they say, well, where did we get this? I have a lot of good answers for that, but they got it probably from somebody that's really trying to get rid of them and can't. But ultimately it's product failure. That is why there's so, and lack of good information is why there's so much lice right now. So what is your website? Where can people go if if they if they want to learn more about the right way, you know, get good information about lice and the right way to treat? So centerforlicecontrol.com is my website. I have a great FAQ page, fax page, and I have videos and podcasts on another page with a lot of good information and you know, we're, my goal is with my company is 
not just to treat and not to eradicate because we're not going to get rid of head lice. It's been around. It's in the Bible. It's, you know, it's head lice has been around as long as we have. So we're not going to get rid of it. But my goal is to reduce the stigma about it and center for lice control to gain a sense of control over the outbreaks, which is very easy to do in my mind because I see how easy it is. But the stigma and the misinformation makes it very hard for people to wrap their head around, pun intended, when it comes to it. But, you know, when it when it comes to cases of lice, every case can be stopped before it has a chance to spread by simply doing a combing head check. And that's it. If people in do combing head checks, which I have a video, I, I um, developed something, I, I developed a type of head check that would be less overwhelming to parents and easy to do for kids because if a kid can sit and get a ponytail, have their hair brushed out to have a ponytail, then that's what the head check is. I call it the peace of mind head check. And for long hair, it's the peace of mind ponytail head check. But if people are doing that, recognizing that it takes from exposure 14 to 20 days to be contagious by doing a combing head check when there's an outbreak going on or if you're in elementary, kindergarten, elementary school, doing that combing head check twice a month will stop outbreaks because a person's going to find it before they have enough to share. You know, we, we, we rely on people getting itchy. We rely on people to communicate to school. We're then relying on school to communicate. Right now we're relying on a school nurse to control an outbreak for an entire school, which is not realistic. And so we're, and we're dealing with product failure. So there are other products that are out there that are better than permethrin and permethrin whether it's over-the-counter strength or per prescription strength, it's still the same issue. It's still not going to work. And it doesn't work any better if it's stronger. It just doesn't. I would imagine it's sort of like when it comes to like my animals, like they're in the area where I live, the frontline flea protection doesn't work because the fleas are just like, meh. <laughs> they just they don't care anymore. So you have to, you know, you they are constantly having to come up with new toxins, you know, to to put on on your on your cat and and your dog to kill the fleas and ticks because the thing that worked last year doesn't work this year, you know, because after so many after so long you develop, you know, they develop an immunity to it. So I would imagine like if if this permethrin has been around forever and they've never come up with anything new, it's kind of crazy to think about. Of course, there's of course there's a, to a tolerance that's built up. So when I was a kid, it was quell, right? Quell was the stuff. Then, and maybe that's lindane. I don't know. Lindane is is another prescription, but these are carcinogens. So while they, you know, of course, lice is not dangerous. It's just icky. It's not a medical issue. It's a social issue. So you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics sends everybody to their pediatrician. Guess who calls me when they have lice? The pediatrician calls me. I can't tell you how many pediatricians that I've worked with 
and doctors in general that I've worked with. And we were talking about this before, but this is so funny that I've had wound care specialists. I had somebody that was a a chemist that was working with a, a very high level of helping hospitals years ago when MRSA was an issue to help come up with the proper cleaning of areas in hospitals to avoid MRSA and traveled the country and was sitting in my salon completely freaked out about head lice. A cardiologist, the head of cardiology for her hospital, she was done in from head lice. So, you know, it, it makes me, first of all, it makes me proud that it doesn't do me in, <laughs> although other bugs do. I'm not a bug person. Um, I'll, but by dealing with lice, I have a lot of respect for bugs because they're incredible and they're survivors. And I respect lice a lot. That's why I don't give it a chance. My process is so thorough that it is designed for a person to be able to do it themselves. I can do it in one treatment in my salon, but it's a life cycle that we want to get rid of. So any treatment, lice product that says it's one and done, there's a life cycle that we're dealing with. One and done sounds great. But then a lot of products say you have to comb every day, of course, because there's eggs there and you want to remove them because that's the future. But the reality is that, you know, uh, by addressing the initial infestation to get the person to be not not contagious right away is the key so that everybody can not worry and go about their business and go to school and go to work and go to dance class and and play dates and parties and feel good about it, not feel like they're sharing the love with everybody with their lice. But to address then the life cycle, in addition to that, my process also makes people accountable for that two weeks after the initial treatment to get everything cleaned up because knits, the eggs, they grow out. They don't come out on their own, so they do need to be removed. But I don't also believe in excessive combing because you're going to lose your audience. Your little person, whoever you're treating, is not going to want to sit there as long as you're going to want to sit there. So by giving everybody grace in the process to revisit it at the perfect time in the life cycle of a louse to retreat two more times in five or six days apart from the initial treatment. And that we're addressing the life cycle by removing any bugs that may have hatched as babies so they're not contagious, so no new nits are there after the first round. But they're also going back into essentially the lion's den. They're going right back into school with somebody that they may have gotten lice from or shared it with yesterday. So uh, by doing these checks throughout the process over the two weeks, not only are they removing any nits that may be left behind so they don't have a false positive in two or three months, because there's no date stamp on these nits. Oh, these are from whenever, right? These are, they have to assume that it's new, but they're also going to catch a case very early. And then that also narrows the playing field to say, okay, well, we treated on Monday, and we did our follow-up treatment on Sunday, and we found more activity. So who were we close to 
during that time. Now, it kind of narrows things down. Oh, well, we did this on Thursday, and that would make perfect sense that there are a few nits here. And, you know, and so ultimately, you know, the, the process needs to be thorough in that you have to have respect for not only the day that the infestation is being treated, but then also the fact that there is this life cycle. And, you know, I always felt so great when I left somebody's house, I combed out all the nits and then I knew I didn't comb out all the nits. You know, I, there's no little flag that goes up and says three more, two more, one more. Wouldn't that be satisfying to know if you could just know that? <laughs> I wish, I wish. But yeah, it's, it's, it, there are a lot of, a lot of products and a lot of bad information when it comes to home remedies and different things. And, you know, people work so, you don't realize what's on the other side of what you're recommending. And there are some services, life services, that have you combing multiple times over a two or three week period of time. And while that's in one way good because it does remove the evidence, on the other side of it, it's a lot of work. And people don't have time in their life style to devote all this time to doing all that. So, you know, to the the, the process that I developed and the product that I have, such a practical approach to not only dealing with the infestation, but dealing with the life cycle and then beyond for the future, because going through the treatment and then the two follow-up head checks, you're now trained and equipped to do those combing head checks twice a month beyond that time. And I hope that that gives people, after going through it, a sense of control when it comes to lice. Wow. I feel like you should be going into schools and teach and training you know, like doing these, doing talks and these schools need to know, you know, we need to be spreading you around somehow, multiplying you, <laughs> like the lights like to multiply. Right. So there needs to be, yeah, people need to be aware. So remind everybody again, where can they go to get this information? They can go to centerforlicecontrol.com. And we have great social media, Instagram, which there's little buttons up top. We have a great YouTube channel with a growing library of cases and also good facts and information. And, you know, nurses, especially nurses that answer the phones at doctor's offices, they give out information to their patients. It's very important that they get good information. While the CDC is great for a lot of things, I like to say that lice is not a medical issue. And the way the CDC's information is put out there, that's the guideline for a lot of doctors and school districts. And they it could be better. So if, if they're giving information to the parents that are calling, it, it would be great for them to have really good information to share. And anybody can reach out to me, whether it's through an email, they can message me on social media or LinkedIn. And if they want any information or if I can help anybody, you know, if they're dealing with kids in in, in a population that there's 
a, a lot of lice. Um, happy to help. Knowing that I work with extreme cases, I also have products that I can donate in, in situations where it's needed. Because when I take care of these extreme cases, I'm doing it. I, I'm not getting paid for it. Thank you so much, Eileen. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for also thank you for helping these people uh, in need. That's that's amazing that for you to be there. I can't I I I can't imagine. I I know because I just from being a just being being a mom and you know having been alive as many years I've been alive. I know that most people are pretty ignorant when it comes to lice. And I and are probably kind of, you know, icked out by it and, uh, you know, kind of afraid of it. And, oh, I don't want that in my house. So thank you for being available for these, you know, children. That's that's amazing. Um, I appreciate you. Um, so you guys, if you have any questions about lice, go to her website. And there you go. You've got information right there at your fingertips. There's a couple of things that I love saying and nurses or any medical people find this really interesting. So when somebody calls me and says they feel the bugs crawling on their head, I know it's in their head, <laughs> right? Not on their head. Yeah. So bugs are not actually on your head so much as they're on your hair. And they're designed by nature to not be seen or felt. So bugs that need us, like ticks and fleas, and bed bugs and head lice and mosquitoes are very stealth. We don't hear them. We don't feel them until we feel them. <laughs> but head lice specifically, we're not itchy from the actual bugs. It's real when you feel them crawling because it's, you know, your head is very, we're, we're really smart that way. We, we say the word and we feel it. But we're only itchy from the allergic reaction to the bug bite. So, you know, everybody's level of sensitivity is different. So some people are itchy immediately and other people aren't itchy until, you know, later, like I said, six to eight weeks. But, and so that's anybody, however they would, however long it takes for them to be itchy. But people that take allergy medicine may never be itchy. And that's the that's the quick aha moment that I, I love my, you know, people that understand that or medical yeah. people are like, oh, okay. It makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. back to it's always good to do that combing head check because if we're waiting for somebody to be itchy, and often when it's a family that has lice, the person that's itchy is not always the person that has the most or the has had it the longest. They're just the one that you know, happens to me the most allergic, maybe. Right. Or... Same with bed bugs, right? You can have one person that gets one bite and they feel it. Somebody's been living with it for a few months. Yeah, mosquitoes are the same way. I I can literally watch a mosquito bite me, and I, I nothing happens. I don't respond the way other people do to mosquito bites, which is kind of scary. I don't either because. You can get serious diseases from mosquitoes, but they don't bother me. I'm just literally sitting there going, yay, infect me with whatever malaria or whatever you have. So I'm, <laughs> I'm my, my, I don't know, my immune system is just junk, apparently. But I, yeah, I don't respond to it. So I don't even know if I would respond to lice. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I have them now. I don't even know it. I don't know. 
The other thing I like to tell people, because I've had some people come into the salon, so I, it, it's ha- it happens when a mom goes into the hospital to have a baby. She has a toddler at home or other kids at home. A, a fair amount of times, I'll get a call that mom's in the hospital having the baby and the grandparents are watching the other kids waiting for mom to have the baby or come home with the baby, whatever. And the kids have lice. And, and you know, if they've discovered this, it, it, and honestly, this has happened m- multiple times. I won't say many, but oh, wow. way more than one time where a kid, the mom is in the hospital having a baby and, you know, the five-year-old, whatever, could be in in kindergarten and they find lice on the five-year-old the day mom is delivering a baby. And then the, the word gets out. Now mom, they think mom has lice. And I've helped people that have come home from the hospital with their baby that had lice when they delivered their baby. Um, in more than one occasion, they have been handed the box to treat themselves while they're in the hospital going through labor. That's weird. Right? Wow. That happened to to more than one person, honestly. And or they were given, you know, the the bonnet, the cap to put on yeah. their head. So they delivered their <laughs> yeah. baby with this cap on their head, knowing they had head lice. And everybody, you know, the way the moms have explained it, they felt like they had leprosy. Nobody wanted Aww. to get near them. It was a very different yeah. experience because of that. Aww. And something I really want people to understand is you're not getting head lice from somebody unless your hair touches their hair. They don't fly. They don't jump. They don't lay their eggs on anything but on the hair shaft in the perfect spot to incubate and hatch. They're not in the environment. So you as a caregiver, if you put a cap on your head, or put your hair up and back, you're not going to get lice from that person. So keep that. And the last thing I'll leave you with, if we're wrapping up, only the sweetest people get lice. And you get <laughs> lice for all the right reasons. Because you get it from head-to-head contact. And if you break it down. Oh, because you're close. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're hugging. We're snuggling. We're taking pictures. Yeah. So if somebody does have lice, they should be thought of as socially acceptable and very loving and that it's icky and they just have to take care of something. But they're, they're, it's not something that they're going to give everybody that they're in a room with. All right. Good. We don't need to just shun them. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. They're sweet. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eileen. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you coming on, help, helping me educate everyone about this this topic. Thank you, Tina. And I hope through all of this, not only are we helping the other caregivers to understand to about lice, but also for Michaela's memory to be used in in such a positive way from beyond this point in making sure people. Are, are ethical and caring. Absolutely. I hope so too. I really hope so too. Well, you guys know you can find me at goodnursebanners.com. I'm also on social media at goodnursebanners. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at tina at goodnursebanners.com. If you have any questions about lice, look up Eileen's website. 
And of course, I always have to remind you before we go, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs>